welcome back to the 2A Ranch Wife podcast, where Ranch Wife, Ag Educator, Cow Lover, Jessica Anderson, shares real-life ranch stories, discusses all things beef, and shares her insight about agriculture. As a passionate advocate and wife to the cow boss, Jessica keeps it real, raw, and genuine. From inspiring cattle tales to telling it straight with all the facts about cattle and agriculture, we're excited to have you along for the ride. Hey guys, welcome back to episode nine. It's been a few years, like almost four, since we've recorded one of these, but I thought, hey, why not kick off 2024 with a bang and let's fire up the old confessions from the 2A Ranch Wife. We're going to kind of start at the beginning this time. Uh, I decided to reintroduce the cow boss and I and tell our story really from the very beginning. And this is a really raw episode. We did an interview last June with our video producer, and I just loved how that interview came out for our video. If you haven't seen the video, be sure to hop on the website and check it out. But This episode today is going to be that really raw, uncut version of our interview for that video and just kind of reintroduce ourselves and hope to help you guys get to know us a little bit better. So thanks for tuning in today. So um, I was born in San Francisco and then we moved to Chico when I was eight. And really my, I started showing horses all over the United States, um, showed half Arab saddlebreds. I didn't do the cowboy thing or anything like that. And then when I got into high school, um, my parents got split up. And so my mom couldn't afford for me to show anymore. So I got into high school rodeo and started uh, team roping, breakaway roping and barrel racing. And then from there, I guess that's kind of where like maybe it started to pique my interest about the Western lifestyle because I didn't really grow up with any of it at all. Um, I did a little bit of 4-H, but mainly just showed horses And so then when I went to college, um, I really wanted to go to college and get an equine degree, but I didn't know if there would be much of a way to make any money with that. So uh, I went with ag business because I figured it was the best of the less of two evils. And um, I can remember my freshman year of college thinking to myself, like, I'm going to get involved in the cattle industry. Why? I have no idea. I just felt like drawn to it. And so I joined Young Cattlemen's Association and helped put on the Chico State's Beef Field Day and just got super involved with it that way. And then I met Spencer while I was in college and um, got a crash course in cows and cowboying and all that good stuff. And so, yeah, that's kind of how that got started. We just explained to me in a little more detail, like what you were doing when you guys met. Okay, so <laughs> um, a mutual friend of ours introduced us the first time at a rodeo. We were both rodeoing at, and I really couldn't stand him at all. He was he was horrible. <laughs> he was yeah. And then that same friend introduced us a couple months later at a party, and kind of the same thing. Uh, Spencer was pretty pretty wild, and then a couple <laughs> years later. <laughs> The same friend uh, introduced us a third time at my house. He, uh, that mutual friend of ours was friends with my brother. And so I remembered instantly who he was, but he didn't really remember who I was at all. So then we just started hanging out a bunch together and he started taking me with him cowboying. He was working for um, a local ranch there in Orville. 
and I got to go a little bit with him then. And then, I don't know, it was, I don't want to say like love at first sight, maybe at third sight, but um, yeah, we just started, obviously we were meant to be because it, it took three times, but we kind of just, it kind of just stuck. And so then I think really from the get go, we always talked about like owning our own cows one day, kind of that, like you know, like far off dream. I can remember one night we just scribbled those dreams down on kitchen napkins and I still have those kitchen napkins and that really, I think just kind of just stuck. And so kind of got us to where we are today. I'm going to come back to that, but I want to hear Spencer's side of it. Well, I'd swing in and grab her after we, after we met the third time and it stuck, I'd swing in and grab her. Like we'd winter there and Chico Gridley, they had little pieces all over the place and and then summer in Soldier Meadows on the California side, the Bacalaw Ranch, which the original Bacalaw Ranch is underneath Lake Almanor, but the new one, if you will, I think the barn there was built in 1862. So we'd summer up there. And uh, when we were on our winter range, I'd swing in, grab her. We'd have to go either pump water or, you know, check on cattle, this and that. And we'd bring her goofy barrel horses along and, or I'd have her ride ride one of my ranch horses, which were probably just as goofy, just have a good time and spend a lot of time together. And it's funny because in the summer I'd moved to the mountains and I was living in a, at a camp up there and we'd get to see each other once or twice a month, you know, and, uh, we told a younger couple that are friends of ours that, that we'd, you know, we'd get to hang out once or twice a month and we didn't get to see each other. We could barely talk on the phone, you know, and, and they said, well, why didn't you just FaceTime? And it's like, well, this was before iPhone was even invented. <laughs> you know, it was, there was still, still, uh, the Nokia button phone, you know, but, uh, so yeah. And then, and then I decided I was going to go to shoeing school and she helped me print out all the paperwork and everything. And I, I qualified for a loan and cause cowboys don't have any credit, you know, went back to work at, uh, my friend that taught me how to shoe when I was 15. He, um, told me if you're going to go to school, we got to, you got to come back to work with me. So I rode around with him for the next six months before I went to school, went to shoeing school and come out of there and started shoeing full time there around the Valley. I had 300 horses in my book and we were rocking and rolling. And then because we don't like to not do something close friend of mine had a, had a ranch that was right across the road from where we were living. And, um, I took care of all his cows for him for dang near 10 years riding colts and shoeing horses and branded calves. And she got to go along with that and it just, it just stuck. She fell in love with it. It was a lot of fun. Were you guys dating or was it like just coming out on the ranch and just do what I did? No, we, we didn't date for the first little while. It was just, uh, we didn't kiss. We didn't date. We didn't anything like that. You know, it was just, Hey, you want to come, you want to come here? You want to go there? And then after a while it was, it was just like everybody else, you know, you can't, you start thinking, well, I got to go do this. I got to call her and she can go with me, you know. Uh, you got to remember too, you were late for our first date because you were sitting in Pedro's saddle shop. I was. <laughs> yes, I was. So I grew up around Pedro Padrini. He's a world-class saddle maker, in my opinion. And I was up there at his shop. I had been shooting some horses and riding a colt up there around Loma Rica where he was living. And she and I had decided to go on our first date. And uh, I looked up at the clock and sitting there smoking cigarettes with him and drinking coffee. And it was like, 
I got a date in like an hour and it's almost an hour away to get there, you know? So ran home, got showered up and picked her up and pissed her off because I didn't open the door for her. Probably should have. But, and that's kind of, that kind of set the tone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, this guy picks me up for a date. He's probably late. He's, I think didn't open the door for me. Yeah, didn't open the door. She was mad because I was supposed to be some sort of cowboy and. I ended up ordering a hamburger and she thought I'd order a steak. Yeah. She thought that was weird. Yeah. And then, well, and then shortly thereafter, I went out to Oklahoma for about a month while school was out. Um, so I went and barrel raced pro rodeoed out there a little bit with some friends. And then I came back and I don't know, kind of would just been attached at the hip ever since. A year into our relationship, I gave her a promise ring. And then on our two year anniversary of being together i asked her to marry me and then we were married on our three-year anniversary of being together yeah and that was 17 years ago yeah i always think it's important to kind of like like the romantic stuff is always great mm -hmm. yeah but like you know where what's the roller coaster you know what i mean like so there's all those things that happen between like when you guys started dating when you got married and then obviously it's we're going to lead up to now Obviously, you were you were cowboying, but like, what were you doing? And then, like, how how did those things kind of come together or not? Or like, you were teaching, right? Yep. So, uh, when we were dating, I was still in college, and then we got married. I guess the year after I graduated college, and then I started in within that year while we were waiting to get married. I started the credential program and got my credential to teach high school agriculture. So I started. Um, a high school ag program at a charter school in California. It was actually one of the the first um, ag program at a charter school. And uh, I taught there for five or six years um, prior to us moving out here. And he was shooting horses at the time. And, you know, being an ag teacher, you're in all, all facets of ag. And I think that's probably where I fell in love with it even more because it was a little bit more of an urban school. We didn't have a ton of traditional farm and ag kids, but you could just see like all of the opportunities for them in it. And I think that's probably a little closer to the time when we really started talking about like buying our own cows and, you know, do we want to own, own our own cows and getting into it? And like I said, I think it was more just of a kind of a, a dream that we scribbled on napkins as opposed to like getting super, super serious about it. Cause we were just more career oriented, I guess at the time I was teaching and like teaching as an eight day a week ag teaching is an eight day a week job. You, it's, it's a lifestyle. It's not, it's not a job. And then I'll be honest, I started to get burnt out, like, cause I went full bore into it and it, I don't know. I just, well, and you started, you started the program with six kids in the ag program. And by her last year, she had 90 kids in her program. And I mean, we did all the hauling for fairs. We did all of the, you know, project visits, did all of that stuff. Cause it was a, it was a charter school platform. It wasn't a public school. So it was a little more intimate with everything. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I don't know. I just started to get burnt out. Like all I was doing was working. It felt like something was missing. And he, at the same time, he was kind of talking about like being done shoeing horses because working for the public is tough. And so he, you know, kind of wanted to go back to cowboying full time. And I told him, I said, well, you know, we didn't have any kids. We didn't have really anything tying us down. I said, well, if you find somewhere else you want to go. Well, and it's no secret go. that, you know, cowboys, 
if I can call myself that, Cowboys are, especially young Cowboys are, they're pretty hard to be nailed down. They like to go and see different country, you know, and they'll leave and go here and leave and go there. And you, you stay somewhere for a little bit and then you start looking over the fence like, well, I wonder what, <laughs> wonder what that place is like, you know, and then you go. And no one there really would give us a chance. Like we had a couple opportunities or a couple things kind of presented themselves where somebody would reach out to us and say, Hey, you know, we bought this ranch and you know, we're thinking you could maybe run cows on it. Is this something you guys could do? So we put together an entire proposal and everything for that. Several times. A couple times this happened to us because I think they knew we were, we were involved in it enough and, you know, it'd get right down to it and they'd be like, Oh no, no, we're going to go with somebody else or we're going to do, do it with somebody else. And so no one would ever, I don't know, wouldn't really take us serious there. So yeah, when he said like, I'm, I'm kind of done here. Like we need to go somewhere else. I said, okay. So he, found a job out here, out in Nevada. And he had looked at a couple other places in California, but none of them were really right. And so then we drove out here, I guess it was April of 2015, to look at the job he took here, wanted to take here, and he took it. And I stayed in California for that next year, though, teaching just to make sure that it was going to be the right move. But then I moved out here in 2016 to be with him again. And then we started wandering again. <laughs> yeah. Went to several different places and and had a good time and got nothing but good to say about them, but it just wasn't the right fit, you know. And had a job come up that was working for the the local Washoe tribe here, the native tribe, and worked there for a little over four years. And just before that, just before I went to work there, we had bought our own our first load of cows. And then as soon as you buy the first load, you start looking at grass and then you look at more cows and more grass and you, you know, if you're going to do this, you're going to get bigger. Cause I was always told anything under a hundred head will break you, you know, keep building. And your first hundred head is the hardest to get to. And it is, I've, I've been told that before and it, and it absolutely is, you know, we, because of death loss and because of cows not pregging back and you're buying sale barn cows. It's like buying real estate. You're buying some, something somebody else doesn't want. And there's a reason they don't want it. So it's a big gamble. You take a gamble on buying those cows and hopefully they can have a calf for you and try and pay for themselves the first year, if not within the second year. And just started going gangbusters from there, you know, had just over 50 cows for quite a while and just couldn't break that point because either we'd lose feed or lose a few cows or, you know, price of cows would go up and the price of calves would go down or whatever it was. And then we had some great opportunities show up that we got some long-term leases and, and we were able to guarantee that, Hey, you know, we're going to go back there next year so we can run this many animals and, and feel safe about it if there is such a thing. So just started building and trying to get as big as we could. And as fast as we could with, with quality control, you know, one, one year we had a crop of calves and, uh, there was a couple of these little calves that come out of first calf heifers and they just weren't anything. They didn't match the load of calves that we were sending the sale. They didn't match anything. And she came to me and she's like, why don't you let me try this thing? Like I've, I've had this idea for a while and I see there's a few other people doing it, but why don't you let me try putting them in a box? And I was like, whatever, happy life, you know, happy wife, happy life. <laughs> let's let's do it. Well, even when we were in Chico before we ever even had cows, I always I always had this like, okay, if we had cows, 
or did anything like that. I just thought it'd be cool to raise food to sell to other people who couldn't do that. I just really like that like homesteady feel. And so when we had these calves, I was like, let me try it. I think I could sell them as, you know, direct to consumer ranch direct beef. Let me, let me give it a shot. And he gave me that look like, okay. And I told him if it doesn't work, we can take them to the sale yard and you can tell me I told you so and we'll never do it again. And so those first three calves, um, we took. And we sold, and I think we sold out of that beef in about six weeks. I mean, which doesn't seem like a, a huge deal, but it was, it's kind of a huge deal. And yeah, I think it took about six weeks to sell it all. And so then. And then we had interest. People were asking us like, yeah. Hey, do you do this all the time or what? You know, and so we, we'd sit at night and go drag up another napkin and go, okay, well, if we saved this many calves, because at the same time we had a loan payment that we had borrowed to buy those cows. So it was like, this loan payment is due on this day, you know, because especially like with the beef thing, the money kind of trickles in, you know, you sell a cut here, you sell a cut there, whatever it is. And so, especially at that time when we were just getting started, it was like, Hey, we need everything that we've got on the ground to be able to sell, to be able to pay the bank back this year, you know? And then it over a very short amount of time, it went boom, like there were people that were super interested, people that were wanting to sign up. There were people that were wanting to be on a waiting list. And we were like, holy smokes, this is, this is something here, you know? Well, I think it's, it's important to remember too, like for us, since we didn't grow up with a family in ranching and, and, you know, owning cows and things like that, we had, we had to figure out a way to stay in the business because it's changed so much over the years. Like I think the, the small cow calf guy is gone. Isn't going to make it anymore. You know, it's, it's just, you, you've got to have like hundreds, if not thousands of head to make it in that cow calf operation. And so being a numbers person, I kept looking at the numbers saying like, okay, we got to figure out a way to diversify if we're going to, we're going to be able to keep these mother cows and stay a cow calf operation, which is what we truly love. Like how well, what else can we do to do that? And so that's why we decided to start selling the beef like really extensively because it's what keeps the cow calf operation afloat. The old, the timing with the napkin, like the first mm-hmm. napkin, like where does that kind of play, like tie in with the whole timeline? Very beginning, probably right after we got married, I would say maybe, well, maybe a little after we got married, like 2011, 2010, because we got married in 2009. So yeah, I would say 2010, 2011. And then we didn't, we didn't buy our first load of cows till 2017. We started the process in like the fall of 2016, but we didn't, we didn't find a load to buy until 2017. And then we started the beef thing in the fall of like 2018. Okay. So 2017, you said? Yep. In 2017, you bought your, your first. So 2017, we bought our first, what, three truckloads. So yeah, we bought kind of throughout the entire year of 2017, we bought our first three truckloads. And then, um, we sold our first set of calves in 2018. And then that, that fall of 2018 is when we started the beef project and then, um, really started selling beef in 2019. And then, yeah, we're, I mean, been selling beef ever since. So when was it, how far into it were you guys when you're like, yeah, like this is, this is doable. This is, this is a thing. Well, I don't think we ever had quit in us. You know what I mean? Like 
we did it. We, we, we started in, in that first, we bought bred cows cause we couldn't find any pairs that we could afford. We had a set number that we could spend. And so we bought fall bred cows and, and with the hopes of we'll calve them out, we'll feed them through the winter and then sell their calves and turn them around to be spring calving cows. And, you know, I think that first load of calves and it wasn't even a full load. It was 40, 41 head of calves. I believe it was. And we lost our ass completely lost it. And as soon as we found out what they sold for, I called the rep, I'd sent him to Turlock and I called the rep. And as soon as we found out what they made, we both kind of looked at each other and we're like, we'll do it better next year. Well, it'll, we gotta, we gotta muscle around and figure out how to not make these cows make money, but how we can do a better job with, you know, with the calves that, that we're having. And, and those cows, those cows came from somebody else's, you know, program, genetics, whatever it was. And, and so once we were able to buy our own bulls and we had the cows that we kind of, and, and we knifed on them pretty good as far as culling, you know, if anything had something we didn't like, if they were real narrow in the hip and just didn't look right, you know, a cow should look like a big, fat, nice cow. That's what they should look like and they have all the capacity in the world. And so we culled hard and bought our own bulls and started doing our own crosses. Not that we know what the heck we're doing as far as EPDs, but we've done quite a bit of studying to be able to choose those bulls that have the good genetics, you know. And I think our first set of calves, I think they weaned under 500 pounds is when we weaned them. And I mean, that's just, you know, light calves now are worth worth a mint. But at, at that time, light calves weren't paying worth a dang, you know? So we went from weaning 480 pound calves with, you know, the cattle that we bought that had other people's calves in them to last year, we weaned 830 pound steers just because of our bull selection and our cow selection and actively culling the cows that are having a kind of a, I don't want to say a bad calf because a live calf is a good calf. But just something that is less desirable. You know, they don't gain their smaller frame. They don't have enough bone on them, whatever it is. So we just started documenting like this cow had this calf and we didn't like it. So we'll give her one more shot. We'll put a good bull on her. If she has another crummy calf, she's down the road and we'll buy another cow, you know. But but to get back to the point, we didn't, there was never any like, if this doesn't work out this year, we're not doing this again. We haven't had that in our heart since we started. It was just, I think to be in the livestock business, you've got to be pretty tenacious. You've got to be, you've got to be half tough and half dumb. <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> well, I think, I think that's perfect. Cause like, I don't know if it's a, a positive point about us or a negative point about us, but we just, we don't really have any quit in us. And so I think we knew like it, this just it's just going to have to work, like burn the ship, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're, we're not going to do anything else with, this is what we want to do. It's what we love to do. And if it doesn't work this way, we're going to figure out another way to make it work. Well, and I've had people tell me like, why in the heck did you do it that way? That was the hardest way you could have done it. And it was like, well, I didn't realize I had a choice other than the hard way. You, you, <laughs> you know what I mean? It just, you just we just been, did it. We had to do it. Been plenty of things that have happened in the first couple of years that I think most people would have probably thrown their hands up in the air and said, we'll try something else. We had some bad luck with some bulls, <laughs> broken legs, broken hips, broken, you know, what's broken, 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 broken. And it was like, good Lord, we bought, we bought enough bulls in two years that you could have probably ran them on 
six or seven hundred head of cows. It just, I bought a new bull one, one time and three days later, the guy that helps us out down there at our winter ranch, he calls me and says, Hey, he's, he's uh, got a broken penis. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, the ink hadn't even cleared on the check <laughs> and, and it just one thing after another. And, and, uh, it just, that's just the way it is. You know, we had a lease that, that, well, we've had a couple of leases that completely scalped us as far as cows and calves. We had a piece of rough country down by Coulterville, California. And I mean, it was brush and poison oak and steep country and we lost cows and we lost calves. And I don't know how much of the calves were to, I found most of the cows, but I don't know how many of the calves were to recreation the local, <laughs> the local recreational farmers <laughs> up in the brush. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then we had another piece that a ditch caved in where they, where those cattle would go down to water. It was kind of carved out where cattle had watered there for years. It was part of John Esquaga's old place. And, uh, the ditch bank fell in and drowned two cows. And it just, you know, when you're starting out in that small, two cows is huge. You know, to somebody that's got 5,000 head, two cows, that's, that's what they, you know, lose in a week, but not us. It, it, it was crippling, you know? Well, yeah, we had one year we had him struck by lightning and then, uh, there was a recall on vaccine. And of course we and had recall you know, vaccine and killed We cows vaccinated and our cows and they, they immediately went into shock and laid down, two of them laid down and died. And so we had heard that there was a recall through Zoetis on the vaccine. And we called them and they're like, read us the serial number on your bottle. And we did. And they said, yeah, you've got a hot bottle. <laughs> they reimbursed us completely. They completely reimbursed us for those two cows. But it was like, we would have to get it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, there's there's a lot of road bumps. I mean, and that's just a small amount of road bumps that I know that we're going to see in the future. But Yeah, but it's what keeps it interesting. So did you guys have any sort of like roadmap or blueprint or like a... a like a mentor of somebody where you're like, I like what this, this guy did. I like the way that he did it. And did you like model your souls after that? Absolutely. I think everywhere, you know, there's never enough tools for your toolbox. And I think everywhere you go, no, no matter where you go, you can learn something, whether, whether you learn that it's the right way to do things or you learn that it's the wrong way to do things. You learn something from everybody that you encounter and bouncing around to different ranches and different places. And, you know, seeing, seeing how these guys sort their cattle or how these guys have their vaccine program set up or whatever it is, you just kind of take bits and pieces from that. And then you build your own blueprint, you know, and not to say that that is the greatest way to do it, but that's the way we went about it. And I've got several very good friends that are in the cattle business and that were in the cattle business that we've called in the middle of the night and went, Hey man, we, I'm, I'm out there tonight. Like, can you just reel me back in? Am I, am I overthinking this? Am I doing too much? Am I, you know, and we, we absolutely took, took every bit of advice that everybody's given us. And we still do. We absolutely still do. And then the cool thing is, is that we've got some friends that are just starting out too, and they'll, they'll call me and that's flattering, you know, and I'll tell them, Hey, I don't know that this is the best way to do it, but this is what works for me. You know, uh, take it for what it is. So. As far as a, like a hard blueprint that we didn't stray from, no, it, it was just bits and pieces here and there. And, and then there's always an invariable when you're selling cuts of meat to the public. You know what I mean? Working for the public again, it's, it's, it's fickle, very fickle. 
Yeah. Well, and I think too, like, like the management side of them, like how to take care of cows, um, how you want to run your cows, that kind of, those models, I think we've definitely had some pretty great, you know, role models to look at who are doing things that you really like that you can model that after. But I think our, our business model, as far as like cow calf to selling the ranch direct beef, I don't think we really had anyone to model that after. That's just kind of something we decided. Nobody that we knew was doing that. To do it on our own because. Or knew personally. You know. That's what we had to do if we wanted to stay in the business. And I, I think one of the craziest things or like it literally brings me to tears every time I think about it is that like last fall we had the opportunity to buy some more cows and the person we bought who we bought out the cows from was one of the very first person I ever got to go help Spencer with. And I can remember sitting up at his corrals and there were these cows coming in and I looked at Spencer. It's probably one of the first times I'd ever really been, you know, close enough to touch a cow to then. And he had some like bread beef master looking cows and I didn't know what they were, but I was like, dude, these cows are so pretty. If we ever own cows, I want cows just like these. And then last summer, you know, that's 15, 16 years ago. And last summer we bought his cow, we bought him out. And I like was in tears thinking about it. Cause I was like, I never, ever in a million years would have dreamed that would have happened. You know, now I get to own these cows that, that kind of like sparked that fire for me. And so that's kind of happened a couple of times that happened in that situation. The ranch that he worked for when we first met, now we hire them to haul our calves and haul our cows and we bought cattle from him. And it, I told him the other day, I said, did you ever think you'd be driving into your old boss's driveway, you know, getting to tell him what to do? You know, it just, it's, it's unreal how like you take a step back and you look at it and like every single thing that has happened in your life is a cog in the wheel. Like it is, it is meant to be there to get you to the next level. And it does, it like chokes me up because comes full circle. It's, it's, it's been a wild ride. Those red cows, when I first started helping that guy gather, I think I was 16. When I first started helping him gather those cows off the mountain and he had some rough, steep, brushy country and he kind of got around, he had a dart gun and kind of got around on his motorcycle, like one of those old trail one tens, you know, and he'd hire us out to gather his country for him and then a horseback and then, um, process all of his cows and brand all of his calves once we got him to the home corrals. And so I'd been doing that since I was 16. And then I drove into his driveway last year and bought him. <laughs> yeah, it just, yeah. Yeah. It was just, it was unreal. Yeah. 20, 20 years of helping him and I'm 38 years old, you know? So it's like, whoa. <laughs> that, that really is cool. That's an awesome story. There's, there's so many people that have been doing this for so long, you know, family passed down 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 so what's the uh like what do you guys get from the industry of like being first generation i think i think you get kind of two things like sometimes i think people are excited for you that you're you know gonna take it over um gonna keep on with it because people aren't jumping in agriculture or raising cattle it's darn right tough and generations are leaving it at an exponential rate. I mean, they're just not staying in farming and ranching. And so you do, I think you get a lot of people who are super supportive of it and want you to keep going. But I think in the same instance, you do still have a lot of that cutthroat 
part of the industry where they're like, well, we had to do it this way. So we want, you know, we're, we're going to make it tough on them too. The cattle industry is, is a tough industry. It's, it's hard to break into. Everybody is after the same thing, which is feed. Everybody wants feed. Everybody wants grass. You know, like I was saying back home, no one really wanted to give us a chance. And it's funny. It's ironic now that we run cattle in the winter, 15 minutes from where we lived, used to live, but we had to move 200 miles away in order to do that. And so I think, I think you get both sides of it. And, you know, being super involved with the beef industry as like a master of beef advocate and working for NCBA and things like that. I think, you know, one of the things I see that's frustrating is that we say that the industry says like, we need more young people to get involved. We, we need more young people to do this and this and that, but there's not a lot of support for them. I, at least I feel that way. There, there just isn't a lot of support. It's a, lo- a lot more sink or swim and, you know, being first generation ranchers and not having like that family to lean back on. You know, we have nothing other than our own experiences to really model a lot of it after. So sometimes, you know, you're up at two, three o'clock in the morning, like, oh man, what are we doing? Are we doing this right? And, and not saying that multi-generation ranchers don't have their own set of, you know, complexity because, you know, you have the stress of like, well, grandpa did it this way and dad did it this way. You know, you have all of that to live up to. So I think, I think both have their own unique set of challenges. I think it's, it's, it just is it, you, you get both the support and. Well, and I had somebody tell me when we, when we first bought our first load of cows, you know, these, these, these folks were like, God, this is just, this is just great. You're doing so good. And congratulations, you know, and I run into him on the road a couple of weeks later. And I said, Hey, if you ever hear of anything, you know, a little piece of feed or a little anything, anything, just let me know. Cause I kind of want to buy some more. And, and it wasn't like I was wanting to buy a thousand more. I wanted to buy 10 more, you know, if you can just baby steps and just keep building. And this is, this is a person who had like acted like they were a friend to me, you know, and he looked me dead in the eye and said, if I find any extra feed, I'm going to take it for myself. And I was like, okay, I see how that is. So not everybody is that way. Not everybody that we've encountered has been that way. We've had more people that have been supportive than not, honestly. But there is that element in the cow business, in the beef industry, that it's, you know, they kind of come at you like it's my sandbox and you can't play with my toys. And I just, you know, if you're standing on one side of the aisle screaming, hey, these kids are leaving the ranch and working in town and we're having to sell grandpa's barn and, you know, whatever it is. We need young people to do this and keep on the industry and blah, blah, blah. And then those same people tell you what that guy told me. It's like, well, how dedicated are you? I I tell my friends this. We've got a tight little close niche group of friends. and, And when I go look at a piece of feed, I try and figure out how we could all run some cows on it. You know what I mean? And, and yeah, there's pieces that we go and look at that are just solely for us too. But if I hear of something, I drove 90 miles the other day to a, to a lease opportunity to look at something because my other two friends were like, Hey, we need some extra feed too. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go look at it. And they couldn't make it. They had day jobs going on, you know, I'm going to go look at it. And I come back and I was like, dude, it ain't going to work for the three of us. It ain't even going to work for me. You know, I I just don't see how you can't try and help these people out. Well, I think that's something too, that we, we say a lot and we really try to honor in every decision we make is like, 
be the person you needed someone to be for you. And people are, they're leaving the, this industry left and right. And if there's a way that we can help someone be successful too, we want to do that. I mean, when we first started selling beef, we sold beef right alongside a friend of ours that was selling beef. beef. <laughs> that was essentially a competitor. But we were like, yeah, there's enough room at the trough for everybody. Why can't we help each other? Because but when we were going over this plan on that napkin, <laughs> sitting, having some drinks one night, he was part of that plan. Yeah. He was part of that plan. He's His ideas are on the napkin too. So it's like, why wouldn't we take you along? Yeah, you know, it, it just, you, you got to, you got to do it. There's strength in numbers and there's so few of us little rancher and farmers left that if people don't start, you know, coming together, there's not going to be any of it left. Well, and what a lot of people don't understand is that there's so few of the big guys. It takes a lot of us little guys to make up the numbers that are being produced nationally. We kill 700,000 beef a day in the U.S., and you can name the big ranches that have tens of thousands of cattle on one hand. The rest of them are littler guys, you know, thousand and under. And a lot of them are 500 and under. Well, the national average, the national herd average size is 40 head. When you think about that, like if that's your average, there's a lot more little guys than there are big guys. You guys had the idea, obviously, on the napkin. Mm -hmm. And then you got to where you are now. So what's... How how has everything changed in your head about where you're at and where you want to go? Um, so I think from when we started, you know, it was all about just, you know, buying that first set of cows and, you know, how we could do that and what that was going to look like. And I don't think then we really ever thought, you know, sure, it's a pipe dream to own your own place, but I don't really think we ever thought that that would be a reality for us. I can remember thinking like, oh, I don't think we could ever spend a million dollars on a ranch. And now, like, I think for us, like, that's definitely the next step. We, we want to own our own place. We want to have our own home place. That's a goal for us. And, you know, whatever that looks like. And so, yeah, it started out as like, how do we just buy some cows to be in the cow business to, now we want to own our own place to have something to pass on to our son. Like, it'd be the most amazing thing in the world if he wants to continue on with what we've started and we want to have something to leave for him. We really appreciate the people that we lease from. We've built extremely good relationships with with the folks that, you know, our summer lease and winter leases and and obviously that has worked out because they keep having us back. You know what I mean? But it would be nice to have a home base, have somewhere that I don't have to drive 40 miles to go change my irrigation water. I could go take hop on a four wheeler and go out to the back and, you know, or to the front or wherever it is and change water or change water on a colt. It, it's the same thing. But, or we would like to build something of our own for our son and at least give him the opportunity to, to continue with what we've worked so hard at doing. And if he doesn't want to, that's fine too. Like not, he can do whatever he wants to. Nothing was ever forced on me. My dad is a heavy equipment mechanic, has been for 40 years, and he never forced that on me. I'm interested in it. I like it, but it's just not what I wanted to do. And if my son feels the same way, then great. But I would like to sit on our back porch and look at our cows and our son can come and visit. I don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? That doesn't bother me a bit, but something that we can have of our own and and to get 
you know, we aren't near as good as we're going to be to get a little bit bigger and just keep prospering and, and being successful. And, you know, hopefully we keep producing a product that people like and keep coming back and I'm all about it. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's not a, it's, it's not something you choose to do. I think it chooses you. I really do. It gets in your blood and it's a competition in yourself. It's a competition between us and with us together. You know, we bounce ideas off of each other all the time. And most of the time I have to concede <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, like, hey, yep, you're right. You're right. Cause I, uh, but we, we just, we just want to keep going and we want to see, we want to be that younger generation that, that is continuing on with, a lifestyle and a, and a way of life and an industry that is, that is going the way of the dodo. It, it really is. You know, I know I said we kill 700,000 a year, but the, the ag agricultural industry, you know, nationally, what is there? 330 million people, 340 million people. I think there's 700,000 producers nationally that feed the other 3 million, <laughs> you know, yeah. Or whatever it is, however the math adds up. That's, and we take pride in that. We do, even though we've got a small little outfit, we're a gear on the wheel, and we enjoy that. Was there a point where you can like, where you can pinpoint where it kind of like got in you, and you're like, yeah, this is the only way. Probably, yeah, probably not until we moved out here. I don't know, something just changed. Like I was saying. I was getting really burnt out teaching. Something just felt like it was missing. And maybe it's because I was just busy, busy, busy all the time. So coming out here kind of forced me to like slow down and gain some retrospect on things. Um, I can remember telling him when I first moved out here, like, I don't remember that happening back home or I, we did that. I don't remember that. Oh, there's like serious like lapses in my memory of things I don't even remember. And I had the opportunity when we were out here, I guess it was like right, either right when we first bought cows or right thereafter that I got to meet some like super iconic women in the ranching industry. And I just instantly felt like I was born a hundred years too late. This is what I was meant to do my entire life. Like, why has it taken till now to figure that out? They were both in their eighties and just like embodied everything you could imagine of what that lifestyle was like. And I just instantly felt like, yeah, I'm finally doing what I was supposed to be doing. Yeah. Is there anything that is kind of like maybe crucial to your story or to your lifestyle or to, to what has happened, like to what has built you guys up to get you to where you are today that like we haven't talked about? So I was, I grew up, my folks had a little handful of cows and ran a couple of little leases and stuff with my grandfather and then with some friends and I think they had 25 cows at one time. That was about it. And my mom and dad always had horses. We did, we team pinned and, and did that stuff when we were little. And they've got old VHS photos of, I had a white Shetland pony and I wasn't much older than Riley. I was probably four or five. And we'd go to these team pinnings out at a, out at a friend of ours. He used to put on team ropings and pinnings and different stuff. And all you could see in these old home, you know, like the car battery home video, <laughs> is a black cowboy hat bouncing around through the cows. The pony was shorter than these steers were that we were sorting, you know, 
and we did that for a while and stuff. And, and then once I hit high school, it was like, what do you, you know, once you hit high school, then you start thinking, what am I going to do after high school? And you have no idea what you're going to do and this and that. And we went to a wedding for a friend of ours and close family friend who cowboyed all over the place. It was this guy's dad who was getting married and they were there and we were talking and he was like, what have you been doing? And I said, Oh, not much, you know, doing this, doing that. And he says, well, why don't you, uh, come up for the summer and stay, help me, help me work on the ranch, you know? And I had no idea, like so green, so wet behind the ears. You know, I had never swung a rope off of a horse. I had never done anything like that. And so I was like, oh yeah, you know, that'd be cool. Whatever it was. Well, he called back. I don't know. A couple of weeks later, it's like, what do you think? Have your mom and dad bring you up, bring your horse with you and, and come on up here. I want to show you some stuff. And so I did. And I'll tell you what, as soon as I got there, he was working for Novi's in uh, Montague, well, Gazelle. And uh, it was the Wild West, dude. It was it was so cool. And cowboys in their chinks and their spurs, you know, and I had this feed store pair of chinks and, and, <laughs> and a George Strait straw hat, you know what I mean? It just, and you're like, oh my God, what the, it was just a total, I grew up Western, but that was a total culture shock. And I mean, there was cowboys bucking through camp in the morning and, and it just, it got in my blood and it stuck there. That's when I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I turned 16 up there and then I came home and the first thing I did was look for somewhere else that I could go, you know, and I had an old Keystone Brothers saddle that was made in San Francisco a hundred years ago and and a feed store pair of spurs and this and that, but I didn't care. It was, you know, I started going and trying different places and wanting to ride horses. And I know I probably screwed a lot of horses up, but I've made some nice horses too, you know, and it just, it just got in my blood and it was so much fun to be able to work that close to the land, to the animals. And I can remember thinking to myself, this is all I ever want to do for the rest of my life. And so I came home and went to doing it. You know, I went to Oregon. I went to New Mexico. I went to Colorado, Nevada, up and down the state of California, everywhere I could go. Everybody that had me help them come brand calves and I'd go work the ground if I had to, I didn't care, you know, but while I was in Montague up there learning, when I started learning the big thing to do every, I think it was Tuesday night or Thursday night, whatever it was, was to go team roping at the, at the County arena there in town. And so my good friend, Jeff, his son, Wes and I, you know, we're running around and Wes was accomplished, big time accomplished roper and junior rodeoed, high school rodeoed the whole nine yards. I mean, they had a, a wall of buckles that would just choke you. It was, he's a super, super handy kid and super handy family. And they put me on one of his head horses. And they said, you ever done this before? And I'm like, uh-uh, you know? <laughs> and they're like, okay, well, I, what we want you to do is come out of the shoot, come out of the box and, and just follow this steer down to the catch pin. Okay. So I nod my head and take off. Did it a couple of times. So Jeff, his dad, he comes over and he goes, here, take this rope. We've been roping the dummy at home. Yeah. He goes, just follow in behind it and start swinging it. Okay. So I nod for another one, come out following behind it and I'm swinging it all the way to the end of the arena. 
did that a couple of times and he was helping me kind of get in position. He'd holler at me down the arena, get closer, back off or whatever it was. And so about the third steer out, he goes, rope him. And I just right around the horns and I was hooked. It was like, this, this is the funnest thing you can do with your clothes on. <laughs> you know, <what> I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> it was, it was the best. And, and I never looked back, never looked back. That's cool. That's yeah. Fun. Just anything that's sitting on the tip of your tongue. If I could like pass on any short amount of years of wisdom to anybody is like, if there's something on your heart that you want to do, you just better go do it. Like it's obviously there for a reason and it might be tough and you might want to give up and throw your hands up in the air. Well, you know, all you got to do is just get up one more time. And I think that's kind of our theme song has been with this is like, if something has been put on your heart, you know, we have one life, like go live it, go do it. And you never know, like, you know, what the road is going to look like to get you there. But don't be afraid to like try new things, leave no stone unturned. Because if you don't, it's just going to keep coming up and keep coming up for you until you kind of give into it. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I know the good Lord placed this love and passion in our heart for a reason. And we're going to give it heck to the end. Well, and the other thing is too, like when I was younger, I'd be in a cow camp during the summer or something like that. And then for the winter, I'd move back down and live with my folks. And this is before I was 18, you know, and I remember getting up in the mornings in the wintertime, I'd have to go feed cows or slosh through the mud or whatever it was. And me and my dad would be getting up at about the same time, you know, and he's getting ready for work and I'm getting ready for work. And he's walking through the house in his big steel toed construction boots and I'm walking through the house in boots and spurs, you know, and we're having coffee and everything, but we'd sit there and either be putting our boots on or having a cup of coffee, whatever it was. And he'd go, God dang, I don't want to go to work today. And I remember thinking, I have never said that. I don't say that about this because it doesn't matter what you're doing. Every day is an adventure. And yeah, there's some days when it's pretty hard to get up because you're tired and especially having a two-year-old and, you know, and I'm not telling anybody anything that they don't already know that has kids. I, I'm not, there's nothing special about us. It just, it is, it is hard to get going some mornings, but I don't think we ever say, I don't want to go to work and you do what you love. You'll never work a day in your life. Thank you for tuning in to the 2A Ranch Wife podcast. Be sure to head on over to the website at www confessionsfromthe2aranchwife.com for all of today's show notes. Give us a follow on Instagram at 2aranchwife and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss out on an episode. Until next time, thank you. And don't forget to stay in the middle.